In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of my majors in college was music performance, and one of the requirements for the music major, which we were reminded of at the start of every semester when we got another syllabus for that major, was that you, as a student of your instrument, were required to practice 12 hours a week. 12 hours per week spent practicing, not just 12 hours a week, like in or near a piano, in a practice room or near a piano, in a piano, how about that? This doesn't count your lesson time. It doesn't count your time in ensemble rehearsals that you had to be at if you had a music scholarship, and almost every music major also had a music scholarship. So pretty quickly here, we're like 20 plus hours a week with our instrument, playing, practicing, working on things. Do the math on that. How many hours a day is that, assuming the ideal distribution of like an equal amount each day? Some of you maybe were already doing that. I'll do it for you. It's about an hour and 45 minutes a day. Um, now, I was advised that 20 minutes of practice focused on like one problem, maybe two problems. It was much more effective over time than an hour or an hour and a half or even a, the full hour and 45 focused on one problem and then a bunch of noodling around that doesn't get me anywhere, right? So now we're looking at like five or six trips to the practice room every day in between classes, before lunch, after lunch after the last class of the day, before bed, after you brush your teeth, you know? I mean, it's, it's nuts. It sounds like a huge burden, not to mention all of the other things that a guy had to say no to in order to say yes to this. But things change when you factor in to what end all of this was aimed at. Juries at the end of each semester this is not a jury of your peers, like in a, a civil or criminal court. This is a jury of people who are much further down the same road that you. They can play the snot out of their instrument. And they are going to listen to you and say things like, you know, when you play a piece like I did once as a sophomore, and I had only learned like the first third or fourth of it, um, um, the notes on the jury that came back to me were, where's the rest? That's all. I wasn't like, this was great. Now, it'll be great to hear the rest. Or like, I really liked your phrasing or your choice of tempo or the way you, you know, executed this or whatever. It was just, where's the rest of it? Okay, so you had juries. We had the junior recital. We had, well, I auditioned to, to study music abroad. Uh, I had my senior recital, which I went back and listened to. Um, and I was pretty good 10 years ago. I don't know so much about now, but I was pretty good 10 years ago. Perhaps even advanced study. At one point I thought I was going to go to Mankato State and get a master's of performance in piano there and maybe to pave the way for doctorate level work to then teach at a college, something like that. But that didn't end up working out. I kind of chickened out of that audition. And what do I get? Well, I still get a lifetime full of the opportunities that a formal study of music at a high level enjoys. Or that, that you know, that I get to enjoy all those opportunities that that study affords. The point I'm trying to get across to you, maybe you have a similar experience to this, maybe it's not in music, maybe it's in athletics, maybe it's in running, maybe it's in weightlifting, maybe it's in woodworking. Sometimes in life we make sacrifices going so far as to say no to good and decent things that we could very easily say yes to, but we say no to those things in order to remain devoted to something that is greater. 
something that's more important. What does this have to do with you? Well, friends, if it's woodworking or music or sports or none of those things, the Lord Jesus has put a call on all of you in redeeming you. He's called you to a life of saying no to many things so that the gospel by which you are saved may also, through your life, reach others and save them. Last week we heard that our love for others in the Christian community takes priority over our own self-direction when it comes to the gray areas in the Christian life. But this principle also applies to those outside of the church, not just within the church. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul describes how he gave up, he gave up his rights and he ordered his behavior in different ways depending on the company he was in. When he was with the Jews, he followed all of the regulations that the Jews followed. When he was around Gentile believers who weren't Jewish, but they were still believers, you know, they knew of the first five books of the Old Testament, and they tried to follow those things, he did too, even though you don't have to do that to be saved. But he didn't want to cause offense to them and have something get in the way of his ability to preach the gospel to them. When he was around Gentiles, he didn't insist on following all of the Jewish practices and customs. He lived like a Gentile, because he had the freedom to do that as a Christian. And when he was around the weak, that's the last group he points out, and I think that's the same group we heard about last week, those with weak consciences, those who feel like things that other believers think are okay, mm, I'm not so sure about that. I don't think I want to get involved in that. Well, Paul would say, all right, I won't do that either. Why? I mean, it sounds kind of like he's manipulating people, doesn't it? He's wearing a mask depending on who he's around. He's not being his authentic self. We'll get to that in a minute. He does this. He tailored his demeanor and his speech and his behavior so that he wouldn't offend people or scandalize them. He gave up his freedom to do whatever it is he wanted to do in various situations so that he could effectively reach them with the gospel. He gave up certain rights in order to keep his credibility. In our cultural moment, authenticity is like a supreme virtue. Anything that gets in the way of your pursuit of authentic self-expression or self-actualization is to be rejected, demolished, or at least kept at arm's length. Get that out of here. I don't want that in my life. And anything that helps your pursuit of authentic self-expression, you know, finding who you really are, living your truth, that kind of thing. Well, anything that gets in the way, or anything that supports that, excuse me, is to be pursued. And everybody else in your life, and in society in general, has an obligation to not only tolerate, but celebrate and support that. At least that's what we're told. Reality, friends, is the world doesn't work that way. To the extent that it does, it's worked that way for about five minutes. And it's probably not going to last long. And more importantly than that, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't allow for a world in which meaning in our lives is fundamentally created by our own pursuit of finding our own truth. Our own self-direction. Because you didn't make yourself. You were made by another. You didn't atone for your own sins. You were redeemed. You were purchased by another at a high price, I might add. 
You don't make yourself into the best version of yourself. That happens by the power of, what am I going to say? Another. Your existence in the past, in this present moment, and in the future is owed to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who created you, redeemed you, and sanctifies you. So Paul, realizing now that the spread of the good news and sharing in its blessings is something of supreme importance, beyond, above everything else, he says this, I do everything I can to spread the gospel and share in its blessings. Now you might think that this level of um, intense devotion to the gospel of Jesus Christ is like an optional thing. Reserved for the apostles. Or maybe it's reserved for like your DCE and your pastor. Um, but, the t- but the truth is, we're all running the race. And like athletes who give up all sorts of pleasures and ways to spend their time in order to be fully devoted to their training, we Christians also are called to give up certain pursuits certain activities that don't build up the church, right? Think about it. Athletes, they train really hard in order to win a prize that fades away. In Corinth at the time, there was something called the Isthmian Games, which is, I won't ask you to say that after me because that's, I'm not even sure I said that right. But it was like the Olympic Games, except for not, you know, around Mount Olympus, I guess. I don't know. It was a, it was a smaller thing, but it was the same kind of idea. Athletes would train for 10 months beforehand in order to be the fastest person to run a, st- a stadia, the length of a stadium, or the the person who could throw a discus the farthest, and if you won, you got to wear a little, like, evergreen wreath. Now, if you buy natural evergreens around Christmas time, maybe perhaps in our Gertens fundraiser, you know what happens to that stuff after a while. It's really nice. It makes the season bright and all of that, but then pretty soon it becomes like a fire hazard. It dries out. The needles are dropping everywhere. Like, you want to, like, get the biggest plastic tote you can possibly find and put it underneath the thing when you're moving it out of the house so that you don't have to vacuum every square inch. That's what they were competing for. Ten months, giving up all this other stuff so they could wear a little evergreen crown for like a week and a half. You are called to an imperishable crown of unfading glory. You are called to give some stuff up, to train for that, to be ready, because the threat of disqualification is real. It can happen to pastors. It happens to pastors a lot. It can happen to laity. It happens to laity a lot. There's no such thing as once saved, always saved. You can, by disinterest or spite or just aggression, jump out of the ark of the church into which God brought you and give this all up. Even after spreading the gospel to others, which is what Paul said, I beat my body. In the Greek, I give my body a black eye. I strike it and make it my slave so that it's disciplined so that after my ministry to everybody else, giving up my own right to just be myself so that I can be a Jew around the Jews and a Gentile around the Gentiles and weak around the weak, that after all of that, I might not in the end be disqualified and lose out on the blessings of the gospel that I gave my life to. The call here is not that you have to give up everything in your life right now everything that you want to do, and go and be like a super intense gospel minister in some foreign country. 
some kind of radical call to ministry. That's not it. The call is to wake up to the fact that your life, because of Jesus, is about something bigger than your hopes and dreams. It's about something bigger than where you want things to go in the next six months or the next year or the next 10 years. You don't have to let go of your autonomy now that you're a Christian. You're freed from having to manufacture purpose, meaning, and direction for your life. Because that's all given to you by Jesus. The story of your life is now part of the biggest story. How God created, redeemed, and is one day going to restore all things through Jesus Christ. And that's because Jesus left heaven, humbled himself, was crucified, and then rose again from the dead and ascended back to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And he did all of that for you. And for your children and your grandchildren. So now your life isn't just about the 80 or so years that you might get here unless something goes wrong. Your life is not about trying to make something of yourself. It doesn't have to be. Your life is already about something so much better than making something out of yourself. It's not about your legacy, although that is a good thing to be concerned about. It's not ultimately about finding who you are and proving that to the world. Because they're going to forget you. Do you know the names of your great-great-great-grandparents? Do you know what they did? Do you know what they were interested in? Do you know what they were known for? Time marches on. Because of Jesus, your life is about eternity in the new heaven and in the new earth. And so this time here is just a prologue. It's a forward. It's that thing that you always skip when you get a new book and you see, oh boy, somebody wrote an introduction. Forget about that. I just want to get to the start of the real book. That's what this is. This is a short fast closing window of time that we have here. You can answer the call of Jesus given through the Apostle Paul. This is from a commentary on this passage. Paul is calling on Christians to give up whatever does not advance the cause of the gospel. He's not telling them to quit their jobs and abandon all their responsibilities. But the things that they are pursuing, the things they're interested in, if it doesn't advance the gospel, why are you doing it? Christian, person bought with the blood of Jesus, priest in the holy nation of God, called by his own name, why are you doing stuff that doesn't advance the gospel? That's the, that's the pressure here. He goes on. Paul himself gave up many things that he could have claimed a right to have. He calls on Christians to avoid doing anything that offends others. Christians should forgo their rights for the sake of others in the community, placing their bodies at God's disposal as a living sacrifice devoted to winning others for the gospel. Friends, we're all running the race. But unlike every earthly contest, we don't know how long our race even is. For some of us, it's 80 or 90 years. For others, it's 30 or 40. For yet others, it's not even 20. There's a quote by Zig Ziglar that I think is great. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Don't aim at nothing as a Christian. You can't assume that you'll have time to get serious about your faith later. Later is not promised to you. For young people and for the aged, the time to embrace discipline and offer up our lives for the gospel is now. Now that you've heard this, now that you've watched this or listened to it on the podcast, 
Jesus has given you so much. He's given you forgiveness of sins. He's given you a clear conscience. He's given you life and salvation. And this morning, I want you to know he also gives you direction, meaning, and purpose for your life so you don't have to figure that out for yourself. Live the life that God has called you to as a parent, a spouse, as a child, as a sibling, as a student, as an athlete, as a farmer, as a nurse. Whatever it is that God has called you to. He's he's called you to that. That's holy to you. Don't give that up. But things that don't help the spread of the gospel, either within your own heart or in the lives of the people that God has placed in your life, give that stuff up. It's not worth it. We don't have time for that. The gospel that saved you needs to go through you, through your life, to reach other people and save them. The peace of God that passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.